Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. Today on Habits and Hustle, we have Jason Harris. Jason is the CEO of the award-winning creative agency Mechanism. He's also the co-founder of the Creative Alliance and the author of the national bestseller, The Soulful Art of Persuasion. The book highlights the 11 habits you need to become more authentically or soulfully persuasive and how to become a master influencer. Harris works closely with brands such as Peloton, Pepsi, United Nations, and HBO, just to name a few. And under his leadership, Mechanism was named Ad Agencies, Agencies A-List, and twice to the best places to work. Harris has also been named in the top 10 most influential social impact leaders, as well as he's been on the list of 100 people who make advertising great. His methods are studied in cases at Harvard Business School. Please listen to this podcast and learn some of those 11 habits to become much more persuasive. Enjoy. By the way, Jason, okay, first of all, how ironic, okay, this is so coincidental. You're coming on the podcast today, and lo and behold, what's the first thing that came up on my feed today was you won CEO of the year. I did, yes. I can't believe that. That's why we have to redo the podcast. Exactly. That's (laughs) why we're really redoing it for all of those people who want to know. know. I can't believe that's amazing. Yeah, I was pretty psyched. It's good. that's a, so what you won CEO of the year for uh, mechanism, but who was the person that, what was the name of the, I guess the outlet or whoever oh, it's who called, did it? It was like for advertising. You know, how you have your fitness trade magazines yeah, yeah. or websites. There's four for advertising. There's ad age, ad week, the drum and campaign. And so this was for the drum, which was really, it's really like started in the UK it's big. It's like the biggest one in Europe, but they also have one in the U.S. That's amazing. So, how does that happen? Do you get nominated, or what's yeah, the process? Yeah, no, you, you get nominated, and then they have like five finalists, and then they have industry judges who vote on vote on it. Basically, that's amazing. So, this is a great way to start the podcast, actually. Right? I mean, like- I was I was thrilled, but I'm also you know a little. I'm a little humble. Like it's not something I like when other people mention it, but it's a weird thing to mention. Hey, and I won CEO. I know. You know what I mean? It sounds well, like super cocky. It doesn't really though. I mean, considering the fact that, I mean, in your space, what you do for a living, you'd want people to know and you'd want to tell people because that's more business on your part, right? Like that's how you're going to get more clients. That's how you're going to get more businesses and brands to work with you guys, which is absolutely right. So this is a great segue into this podcast. I mean, so, you know, this I'm I'm talking to Jason Harris, who is now the CEO of the year, according to That's Drum, right. yeah. um, who is also the, well, who is the CEO. I of wonder mechanism. also, does that last one year and then it expires? Mm-hmm. I, you know, that's a really good you question. You just always say that. You just always say that. Well, I'm going to tell you something that whenever I make a list of some kind, like, um, you know, women, like uh, women entrepreneurs or like fitness people, like you make... It's, I think it's like evergreen. Like, I mean, my last fitness list that I was on was like, I don't know, six years ago, five years ago. And I, and people still talk about it. Like when I'm on interviews, they're like, oh yeah, like she's at the top 100 of fitness entrepreneurs and blah, 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 blah. And I think to myself, yeah, but that was like, you know, in <laughs> 2004, but I don't say anything. So I think you can, I think it's evergreen. I think you, you just added to your bio. Yeah. yeah you yeah, added to it. your bio and I think it's super impressive. I mean, your your bio in itself is super impressive. Nevertheless, I mean, uh, it's really amazing. Uh, what is? Can you tell us what mechanism even is? What what you guys do? Sure. Yeah, we're a creative advertising agency. So I started the company. I co-founded it sixteen years ago. Can you believe that? I don't know. Wow. Yes, sixteen years ago. And you must so, have been like fourteen. No, I was not. Uh, but I. I always knew I wanted to, you know, what it's like to have that entrepreneur gene. You're always, you're trying to figure out an angle to to get your own thing going. Right. And you're always trying to figure out how to do it. And then you're worried if you lose your, if you leave your job and start something, how are you going to make ends meet? 
until the company starts making money. And so I worked at uh, a lot of different agencies. I always knew this is what I wanted to do. This was my, my path. A lot of people find their path or they pivot in their career. But I always knew I wanted to go into advertising since I was a kid. Which is really weird, I know. But, wow. Well, what, yeah. why? Why was that? What were you? What was your forte, your specialty, your passion? I really love the idea of branding. I've really always been into design and logos and identity, and really, I, I always love storytelling. And I'm I'm a big music fan, and I always loved how brands, how bands, kind of branded themselves with their names and their logos and you know what they wore and so I, I was sort of part of it and then as i watched tv as a kid this is obviously before streaming way before streaming i would watch yeah. ads on tv and i would really respond to them or think about what they were selling or the angle they took and why it, and now my kids do it with me when we watch ads on we're watching sports and we watch ads. We always like dissect the ad. Of course. And I don't know. I just always did that. I would I was always excited around Super Bowl time when the ads were coming out. And, you know, we had a Super Bowl party at my house and I tell everyone to keep it down so I could watch the ads. I've just <laughs> always really been into that. And I thought it was a great intersection of, you know, art loosely and commerce. And so I just was like, okay, as soon as I get out of college, I'm going to try to find a job in the field. And I sort of, I did promotions like field promotions for a while. I did like inflatable Miller genuine draft cans. <laughs> you know, if you yeah, see those, totally. uh, those were big for a while. Uh, so I started in the field. Then I worked at the design shop. Then I worked at a lot of uh, big name agencies that I got jobs at. And I would always sort of keep a notebook on what I liked about the culture or how someone was a leader. I was sort of studying it, knowing at one point I want to break out and start my own thing. And the opportunity came when there was, a, I was in San Francisco at the time, I'm in New York now, but there was a group of uh, friends sort of in the industry. And one guy was a tech guy, uh, someone else was a designer, someone else was a a film production person and I had the agency experience and it was sort of like the super friends coming together with our different backgrounds. And that's, that's how we started the company. And we had, you know, we would do stuff for free. This is something I always talk about. Mm. I'm not sure if we talked about this prior, but uh, I, we would, we, we spent like a year pitching brands and doing, you know, creative work for them really just to produce it and make it without charging them so that we could quickly on our website have have like big brands and big logos. And so we sort of took a mulligan the first year of making money. Mm -hmm. and, and our investment was, you know, we were like blowing through our what we had saved and barely making any kind of payroll. We had like maybe two employees and we would just do work and produce stuff to say that we worked with Microsoft or, or, you know, some other big brand and whether they used it or not or ran it or not, we could say that, Hey, we, we did a job with this brand, which allowed us to have work and case studies to then get paying gigs. And so I came to that conclusion pretty quickly, even though we had, we all had different experiences from our backgrounds, unless you, unless someone says, Hey, what have you done? Or point me to your work. Or are you, you know, whatever the hundred most influential, you know, health and fitness <laughs> guru, you don't have any credibility on your own. And so we really spent, you know, a period of time just building that up before we went out and, and competitively pitched against other agencies and tried to get the real money. So that you know, was sort of our approach. No, I like that. I, I actually, I always tell that to people, you know, that you have to do a lot actually in, in, in the I guess in the front end that is for free. You got to like actually prove yourself. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't want to do, I, I, you know, I know my value, but a lot of times you may know your value, but someone else has no idea what your value is. And to leverage that is really important. Th those names, like I, you know, I did a lot of that myself. So I understand that. Um, 
So how would you even do that? Would you approach a company and say, I will do this campaign for you for free? Or how, what was the process even to get to that point to even suggest and offer your services for free? So, you know, we all had some contacts uh, from working in other places. And for a long time, we would study a brand like, uh, I don't know, we did work for MTV and Sega and Microsoft. And we would, we would sort of try to find what their pain point was or what an, an, a, something that we thought they needed to talk about or bring to the market more. So we would kind of strategize and study that. And then we would come up with like three ideas and present it. And we would, we would make a meeting by saying, you know, sometimes we would just reach out and say, Hey, we have a bunch of ideas. No, no commitment. I just want, you know, we've been studying your business and we want to present them to you and we get some friend hookup or connection to somebody. And then we come in with these ideas and I'd say, you know, three out of 10 times we did that, we would land something and then we would go make it. But it was, you know, a lot of work and a lot of guesswork. And we also send emails where we have a bunch of ideas and if they didn't respond, we wouldn't come up with ideas. And then if they said, all right, I have a half hour on Tuesday, we'd like frantically try to come up with some concepts that we could go pitch. Yeah. And so we actually, the biggest one we did, this was when we were a little more established, but we went to um, Pepsi and I sat down with the the CMO that I got introduced to at the CMO at the time. And I said, what's your biggest pain point? And he said, we have uh, this Super Bowl halftime show, but we don't have this. This was the first time they sponsored the halftime show, and it was with uh, Beyonce. And we don't have an idea to run during the halftime show. We, we, we are lacking a concept. And this is probably like in October, and the Super Bowl was in February. And so in that case, I sort of put the ideas that I had that had nothing to do with Super Bowl. I never showed them. And I said, all right, I'll be back in a week with some ideas. And then we went back to the kitchen and came <laughs> back with ideas. And there, you know, we landed one that he loved where we did a, a user generated ad with introducing Beyonce when she was about to perform where people would, would send in submissions and we stitched together this Super Bowl ad. And that got us into Pepsi and we started doing a ton of brands, but we came up with a concept you know, for free and he paid us to make it ultimately, but yeah. So that, that's wow. the kind of hustle we did when we were starting out. And then you build up a name. We've been at it for a long time now, but after a number of years, you get a reputation and your clients recommend you and you build up a name and, you know, we pay, uh, we have a, a marketing people on staff and we have a PR firm that we pay. And so that PR really is great. Um, sort of pull strategy because it pulls in clients because they hear about you like with awards speaking podcasts you know that type of exposure really gets you your company known and then then it's more of a pull versus push marketing strategy where you're not knocking on doors but you're trying to figure out which calls you want to you want to take on and which which clients you want to go after so yeah but it takes time takes time I have a couple of questions that you just said from what you okay. just said. First of all, I want to say that. So that's so interesting. So of the Beyonce Pepsi halftime show, that was how many years ago? Uh, maybe seven. Seven maybe, years ago? Maybe maybe longer, maybe eight. I, I think that is a, I think that is a great case study for people to hear and listen to because yeah. – the fact that that is like the biggest marketing um, experiential, you know, you know, experience or uh, platform in the world. And you as a company did that one for free as a concept. I think that's like you would think that the Pepsi would have paid you guys millions of dollars to come up with that right. concept. And that was a, that was that was free to get the business, which I think was a, I mean, yes, they paid you for the actual uh, to production. Yeah. yeah. yeah but exactly. the actual concept, you would think that you guys would be in the room for a year, like for the, you know, for a year prior trying to figure that out. Um, 
that to me is un- unbelievable. A yeah, lot of- sometimes when people, you know, this is like a great sales strategy is is trying to figure out what whatever business you're in, what your clients' pain points are, and that's where they really need the most help. And then you take that in and listen, and then you come back with a solution that can apply to any any business that you're in. So did did Pepsi from that point become one of your big clients in terms of all their different marketing or experiential events or uh, yeah? So then we started doing we started doing. I think we did like the next four uh, Super Bowl halftimes for them, and then they became uh, an agency of record. And then we started doing other Pepsi brands uh, from that. So it turned into millions and millions of dollars. And, and then I moved to New York because we were working with Pepsi so much that I had to be closer to them and opened up New York, New York office. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was the deal. So, so then I'm going to look uh, up this year cause it's bothering me. No, go ahead. I'm, I'm curious. I, I think it had to be, I have a bad sense of time. Well, I it think was, it was about seven years ago. I think it was right. 2013. So that was eight years ago. Okay. Eight years ago. Yes, it was eight years ago. Yeah. So as a company, were you guys even profitable by that point, or? Yeah, we were. We were profitable. Um, probably we were profitable about two years in, a year and a half into the business, and we've grown organically. We've never taken any investment money. But what happened was. We really started as a digital production company, and then we moved into, we kind of did viral marketing for a long mm-hmm. time when it was easy to put content online. And if it was good, it would get millions of views, you know, before YouTube was so inundated with everything. So we kind of pivoted the company several times. And in 2010, we went from really a, a digital production company, then a viral marketing company, and then we became a full service agency. So we had to hire account management people, strategy people. So we had to really grow. And the reason why we did that was I had about, I don't know, 40 employees at the time. And when you're doing production work, you're kind of going project to project to project. And when you're in the agency world as an advertising agency, clients typically will hire you on retainer. So you'll get paid every month for your staff. And so it's, you can count on the money. It's much more consistent. And so I wanted to move to that model versus the, the sort of uh, hand to mouth model. And so that's really what, what made us, you know, make that change. And, um, and so at that point, when we pitched that Super Bowl idea, we were, you know, as an advertising agency, we were only a couple years old. And every time you pivot, you sort of have to rebuild your reputation as doing this other thing. Right. You know, because yeah. everyone still thinks of you as the other thing you did, um, especially if you're not changing your name, you know, doing a name change or rebranding. So it takes, then you kind of have to reset and build up the credibility in the in the other space. Well, you know, my question is going to be uh, now is, how do you do that well? How does somebody really pivot and then gain a reputation for doing something that's different than what they were doing before when they're moving and evolving in their career? How did you, how did you do it? Well, we sort of, I've always believed in taking, um, you know, whether it's smart or not. Uh, I always believe in taking, uh, doing big changes and big moves all at once and not sort of uh, dipping your toe in. And, you know, when we started the company, it was like, quit your job, start this company. When we changed and pivoted, one day we had a website that said we were a production company. And then literally then we, re- we built a new website and then we hit go. And the next day we said we were something else. And we didn't do it. Uh, I'm not saying that's right for everyone, but we didn't take baby steps. We just made bold a bold move even before we had the staff to pull off this sort of new role and we just said well if we build it they will come and we'll figure it out and so it you know happened to work out for us i think 
trans transitioning slowly might be better for some people or, you know, morphing into it. But I, I, I kind of firmly believe when you're toggling between two or three worlds, you're not giving, you're not putting all your eggs where they need to go and you're not doing it with enough, um, sort of force and commitment. And so I always believe in when you, when you change, you just got to change and, you know, people will catch up on your team and you just got to say, this is what we do now. (laughs) So that's my philosophy. Also, I will say at the time, um, I, you know, when early on in the company, when we started, I wasn't, you know, married, I didn't have a family, I didn't have, you know, it's easier to start out when you don't have all those commitments. And, you know, when you have a mortgage and all that stuff to worry about. So when we started the original company, um, we were, you know, not, we weren't so, we were a little freer to eat ramen and not make money. (laughs) Right. It's not the case now. When we pivoted the company, we could do that because we had, you know, years and years of experience and profit and we had money in the bank saved up in the company. So it was easier to go down. I think we lost 50% of our revenue when we made that transition. And then in the second year, we were higher than we were before. So we did dip down to get, you know, two steps, whatever, two steps backwards. What, right. One <laughs> steps step forward. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, what is, you said something also about the pull and push strategy. So what is that exactly? I like that you were saying. Um, so I just, I always believed also in business that um, when you're starting and you're building something, you're doing a lot more of networking and knocking on doors and cold calling and doing favors and just trying to build your network and build those connections and keep that network going and doing a lot of favors and you know meetings for free and ideas for free. And then you get to a point where you sort of build a base and then you invest when you have some money, you invest in PR, you invest in marketing on behalf of the company, uh, you invest in getting your name out there and spending energy speaking and flying to events and, and just really trying to get people to say mechanism, mechanism, mechanism and know the name. And, you know, if you're doing habits and hustle, it's the same thing, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's then you get to a place where you are, your name is is out there and you're getting, you're speaking on television or writing an article on entrepreneur or whatever you might be doing, but it gets your, your company's name out there. And so that to me is the pull strategy where over a period of time, instead of knocking on doors, people are knocking on your door and then you can really determine who you want to work with and you have a little more choice in the matter. And so there's that, that transition sort of happens over time, but you have to, invest instead of investing in case studies or your business or cold calling you're investing in getting branding and putting your name out there to get those calls to come in so that's like push for the the push transitioning into the pull strategy for your business i love that are you by the way so is pepsi not a client anymore of yours well we were we were working with them for a while then we went and worked with Coke and you, you know, you Uh-oh. can't and you, in your master <laughs> services agreement. You can't work with both. And then we won, um, Quaker, which is Quaker oats, hot, yeah. you know, chewy bars, you know, there's a lot of brands under Quaker and that's part of the Pepsi family. So we couldn't work with Coke anymore. And now we're back at Pepsi under, but working with Quaker. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. um, how did you even get the Coke business when you were working with Pepsi anyway under it? Like how did that kind of, I'm sure Pepsi uh, we, wasn't very happy about that. I'm, su- I'm surprised. No, you- but the Pepsi business had slowed down for us and then oh. we got invited to pitch something at Coke. And then when we won it, we had to sever our ties with, you know, you had to write ourselves a contract that, you know, we can't work together anymore to sign the Coke contract. And so, then the Coke business we were working on sort of didn't, didn't work. The product didn't work that we launched. And then what was the product? Uh, 
Uh, well, it was. It, it's still around, but it's called Peace Tea. What is it called? Peace Tea. No, I don't remember. Yeah. I never heard of it's it. It's got like a peace sign on it. Yeah. That, was yeah. that one of the, uh, on the, you know, failures? I mean, there's probably, there's, I was going to ask you eight, later on anyway, like some brands that kind of were really hard to launch and the, like the, the winners and the losers, so to speak. Would the Peace Tea be on the loser side? Uh, no, because it really, it was just small and it never, it's still around. It just never blew up, you know, it never like really cut off. What would you say, um, what, like for a company of your stature and like when you're dealing with companies like Coke and Pepsi that are like, you know, fortune 50 companies, obviously, what, what would be like the retainer? Like, give me a, give me a price point. Like, give me an, uh, uh, a range ballpark. of the kind of, yeah, the kind of like ballpark range that we're talking for. Like so for any retainer. brand, uh, an agency fee retainer would be between, and you know other agencies that maybe have a a car account um, would yeah. be you know way bigger than this, but most of ours are in the like one million to five million annual retainer range. Annual, okay, so that's yeah. not okay. So that's annually, depending on that's how annually, much and then on top of that, you would get paid to produce work. That's really just for the staff. And then you get paid to make the ads on top of it. Right. Then expenses, basically. Yep. Yeah. So that really pays for your people. Right. And then um, would you say you would be considered, are you more of a strategy person or an idea person? Um, uh, yeah, I, follow, I would fall more on the strategy side, the business strategy side. The business strategy not, side. Yeah, not, not on the idea side, but I sort of, I like to dabble in everything right but yeah i would i'd be i'm more of the marketing uh networking getting the clients in the door you know i do i am involved in pitching the work to land a client right uh, but i'm more on the business uh relationship and strategy side of the business right and then yeah. um you also, we didn't even, I didn't even mention it yet properly, but uh, you wrote a book called The Soulful Art of Persuasion, The 11 Habits That Will Make Anyone a Master Influencer. Um, That's a bold title. It's a very bold <laughs> title and I like it a lot. And uh, number, well, why don't we start with this since it is in the title, you say there are uh, 11 habits that will make you a master influencer. Uh, what and also the what with the title is the soulful art of persuasion. Yeah. What would you what would you say the best tactic would be to persuade somebody? Well, I don't think there's one specific tac tactic, although I can I can list off a bunch. But as you know, the there's eleven of them, but they're sort of centered around four major principles, and so those. You want me to just kind of oh, I can, I can, oh, I can talk about that too. So you have All four right, cool. key principles, right? So the first, key, let's go with that then. Okay, so you have four key principles. The first one is original, right? What does that mean? Be yeah, original? So, yeah, I mean, it, it, essentially, it's the idea of leaning into your true self, being yourself because uh, everyone else is already taken and it's the power that's the it's the power of understanding who you are uh, what uh, your belief system is and what you know who your role models are how you respond to people uh, stories that make you unique uh, what's define you as a person and just really you know wearing your idiosyncrasies on your sleeve being who you are that is sort of a, a major principle for being persuasive. And there's a lot in selling that people believe it's, it's sort of like the mirror and matching idea of being like the person on the other side of the table or trying to find those, those similarities. And that, that's sort of part of it, but it's much more about standing out and being yourself and being memorable. And that is a technique that works really well for, for persuasion and for selling. And, you know, be, being who you are. And I think 
um, that allows other people to be comfortable being themselves and being vulnerable. And that forms the relationship. Not that you have so many things that are similar, but that you're, the similarity is that you're both vulnerable enough to talk about who you are, what you care about. And you sort of have conversations that are a, a level beyond surface conversations. And that's essentially what original is. Um, so, yeah. And then, and then this idea of, and then the other three are. Oh, wait, wait, before you even yeah, get to oh, the sorry. other three. No, no, no. I'll, let, I, I'll let you steer me. Sorry. No, no, no. Cause <laughs> I, I, I really like that. I, I'm a big believer in that myself. Um, but you said something within that key principle of persuasion, which is storytelling, you know, um, you know, I find that to be a very difficult thing to do myself. And I know a lot of people probably do also. That's like where a lot of anxiety comes. Like that's why even with social media, right? Like um, I get really anxious because I'm like, shoot, like content creation, telling a story, being vulnerable like that, or even pulling from your own experiences and then um, extrapolating in a way that resonates with people. That's a talent. How does someone get better at storytelling. Cause I, I do, I do agree with you. I think that's something that makes somebody, their stories about them makes this, that builds on their uniqueness. Right. And that's how you develop these um, connections um, and, or that's what is necessary when you're trying to build your own brand, right. The authenticity of it. How does, how do you do that? If you're not necessarily naturally good at it? Well, anyone, you know, anything in the book are habits that you can learn. And so when you do something enough over time, it becomes in your consciousness and it becomes habitual. And so I believe that anyone can be a good storyteller. And sort of part of that is taking the time to really think about stories you want to talk about, things that have defined you, things that have happened in your life and the lesson learned from them. And it doesn't hurt to, you know, have a have a notebook and, you know, spend some time writing those stories down. But the best stories that we tell are events that have happened to us in our life and why, what's the sort of outcome. But trying to really practice knowing those stories and being able to, to tell them when you're connecting with someone. The other thing is, why do you love uh, movies or music? what connects you with those movies or music or a book that you love. It doesn't have to be stories only unique to yourself. It could be well-known stories that people can identify with, but you're looking to pull out for you what was important about that song or album or artist or book or movie and why, or not just it's my favorite movie. Well, why, why is it your favorite movie? What does it connect to within you that can tell someone about yourself? So that's another um, area of storytelling. It doesn't just have to be stories or events or, you know, drama that happened in your life. It can also be pop culture uh, things that, that connect with you. It's more about going deeper into why does it connect with you versus I like this, I like that, I like this. So, um, yeah, that and anyone can be a good storyteller if you really just take the time to think about it and tell those stories. Right. And practice because over time it becomes much more natural if you do it. Practice is really important. And sometimes even, and it sounds contrived, but it's, it's really not. Sometimes you, you think about a story and you practice telling it and you really want to remember the way the story starts and then like sort of the capper at the end. And then the rest you can kind of, uh, it's like telling a good joke. The rest you can kind of massage, but you mm -hmm. got to like really stick the landing remember the intro and stick the landing yeah uh, but like anything you know uh, some some a few people might come out of the womb as like great storytellers but that's few and far between most people that are good storytellers it's practice and yeah to, yeah no i think that's I, I yeah i mean it's just i guess it gets very um like that when you when people me included when I know I'm not good at something, right? And then I feel like, oh God, here I go again. I got to try this again. It gets so daunting and anxiety ridden, especially yeah. that, that you don't want to do it, right? So like maybe start small by, like you said, not focusing on the, on yourself so much, but focus on something that's more like a connecting point with other people 
where you can share with them. Yeah, absolutely. Or right. if it's if it's working out, or you know, uh, yeah, I like, box, I like boxing. Right? Why do I love boxing? You know, J- Jason, yeah. I know more than just working out. I'm just letting you know. You don't have to use that as an example, okay? All right, but- fine. There's just those treadmills <laughs> right behind you. you know? know. All right, why do you love the Rolling Stones? How about right. that? Like- well, yeah, exactly. I used to be in the music business. That's why. Well, I used to work for uh, record labels before I transitioned into the health and fitness business. So, What's the best record label you worked for? Uh well, uh, it depends on what level, right? So I worked for BMG Music in Canada. Then I moved to, or I, then I did Immortal uh, here in LA, where I am, which is part of Sony. Um, I liked Immortal; it was super cool. Coming from Canada, and then I moved from Canada to LA, and I, my office was on the beach, and I could ride my bike to you know to work, and the people were super super cool. And uh, this guy Happy Walters, who was the founder of Immortal had like a gym. He also had like a gym in, at that time, back then having a gym in your office was very, very, um, luxurious, very luxurious. And also just like, it, it was just something that no one did. It was super unique. And, um, so that was one. So yeah, I would say that. But then when I went into, uh, training for record labels, I kind of like left as a marketing person and then went back as a trainer, a personal trainer. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I, I did, did. I liked MCA Universal because of the people, like my boss or the head of the label. I really, really had a good relationship with. So the truth is not about what the bands were. It was more about the people I who were involved. It's all about the corporate culture, the community of people around you that always, for me anyway, make all the difference. Surrounding I think yourself. That's always true, right? Yeah. Like I always wondered how were you working there when labels were just like making tons of money, tons of money. And so I, I, uh, yeah. And so what happened was when I, it was, they had huge budgets for crazy ass stuff. And I left when all the music stuff actually was not about about music. It was much more about like technology. So like when the dot-com whole thing, the whole dot-com business happened, everything was about like iTunes and Napster and my, you know, whatever, MySpace, whatever that, like it was a long time ago. We're like talking, that's how I started my entire professional career. Right. So how do labels make money now? I mean, we'll switch back to my stuff too, but I I do wonder like how is streaming just like the way they make money now? I think what happens is they make money through, uh, they sign up, you sign a lot of people and you hope for one huge hit, one huge person to really kind of like drive it home. Right. So most people are not making any money. Like most, most of the talent or the artists on the roster don't do anything. When I was with them, we signed so many people and, uh, a funny story, actually a girl I used to work with, her name is, uh, Michael and, uh, and now she goes by Mickey Guyton. Do you know who she is? No, she was one of these girls. People look, I mean, she was one of my favorites. Uh, when I was working with her, it was more on the fitness side, right? It wasn't, I didn't have anything to do with her signing, but the guy who hired me at MCA signed her and she was like, had a voice of an angel. She sounded like Whitney Houston. Uh, like they, they were, they were, they thought that she was going to be the next Whitney Houston. She was young. She was stunningly beautiful, extraordinarily talented. Um, and you know, nothing, you know, they put effort into her for, to a certain degree. And then what happens is you get dropped for many, many reasons, or it's just not happening. She got re-signed by Babyface. She was hired and she was basically signed and re-signed by tons of labels. Okay. Next thing you know, this was now, she was like 15 years old at the time, 16, 17, 18, nothing, nothing, nothing. This is a girl who was super talented. And then one day I'm watching the Today Show like two weeks ago. And it's like, she, she decided, actually what happened was she decided to leave LA and she's like, you know what? I'm going to go to Nashville and become a country singer. So she said, no. and I'm like, what country? What are you talking about? Like you do totally like soul R and B like that. She's like, no, I'm going to do this. And she went and she became like, she, she won like new art. Like the, the, This is now like she left 10 years ago. Anyway, she, I'm on, I'm watching the today show. Next thing you know, she comes up, they're like, 
in, you know, on the, what do you have? When they have those things every Friday at the Today Show. They do their uh, concert series. Yeah, she was he- she was headlining the concert series like Mickey Guyton, Artist of the Year and Grammy nominated wow. and da da da. I was like, oh my god! So of course I like reached out to her. Point being, that and was so she changed her whole. She image pivoted hard. Yeah, and you know she became now she's super like she's doing extraordinarily well as a country singer. But this is a good this is a great example of no like. People who are takes 10 years to be an overnight success or sometimes 15 years to be an overnight success. Right. This girl was working at it, working at it, working at it. And since she was like 15, 14 years old and now she's hitting her stride. She's what, 37 now or she was already like doing fairly well, I believe, like a few years ago. I don't really know all this, like all the new. That is commitment. She caught that. I mean, I, I love that. So you just told a killer story, right? From your career. Yeah. Because we're talking you. about storytelling. Yeah. But it, it almost, that's like, you know, what I take away from that is, um, first of all, the ability to adapt, right? Because she changed mm-hmm. from different styles, but also this idea of, um, uh, endurance, like stamina. stamina. She like, oh, she God, just yeah. kept, she was like, I am not, nothing's going to deter me from this. Perseverance. It's perseverance. Nothing's going to deter me from this goal and I'm going to just do it and I'll f- keep figuring out a way in until it happens. You know? Absolutely. And I want to say, I'm going to give her a shout out. I want her to, I'm going to tell her to listen to this episode because that girl, no one deserves it more than that girl. She is quality through and through. She is a, she is a very, not, her inside never changed with all the back and forth and the resilience that it takes to get up, you know, to, to get to basically fall and get right back up again. And then not, and then not that not change the core of who you are is so, so commendable. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, I all, you know, I just I think, love that. yeah, she's a great, she's a great girl. And, um, Hi, Mickey. So she changed from Michael to Mickey. Yeah, I'll, I'll forgive her. All right, Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, John, uh, you know, the actor John Hamm was sort of like Yes. That. He, he like, just kept going, kept going, and then he landed, you know, the Mad Men, because we're talking about advertising. Yeah. He landed that role, and, you know, his career, you know, he's in his 40s then, and, his exactly. you know, his career took off, but he persevered and was didn't let anything deter him. Absolutely. I, I, that's, I, re- I remember that actually the perseverance. I mean, I, I really do believe not to sound like kind of like corny, but I do believe anybody's dream is possible. If you kind of stay, if you kind of stay, if you're very, if you have the persevere, uh, perseverance, if you have the resilience and the tenacity, right? Like you have to just stay on that path because the truth of the matter is most people give up. Most people quit. And it are, it are those, it's the people who don't let that, that kind of, kind of like that, that falling down, that failure stop them from continuing. Right. Yeah. It's about how you adapt to failure. So, um, yeah. And it's also that that's, if that's your dream, you just, you sort of outlast a lot of other people too. Yeah. It's attrition, right? Attrition. Yeah. Attrition. And then you're there. And then you're there. No, a hundred percent. But uh, since this is about you, not Mickey or John Ham, which, by the way, I, I love those stories, though. So yeah, uh, I love them. I want to hear about the second key principle of being persuasive and being a master influencer, and that will get get us to generous. Yeah. So generous is really this idea about trying to have the philosophy or the idea that when you cross paths with someone, you make them a little bit better than you were before you cross paths with them. And it's about um, giving, giving sort of being generous by nature, by spirit. And that is, this one is counter to, I mean, that's how I am now as a person, but I had to develop into this one, sort of the original, concept was easier for me. Uh, I was, I was, I kind of came out myself and leaned into it, Mm -hmm. but generous. I wasn't generous. When I started, um, uh, my business, I would sort of hoard contacts, right. 
And I would think that was the name of the game that my, these are my connections and I'm not, why would I serve them up to, you know, people in my network? Cause these are my connections. And then you sort of evolve and you mature and you realize that you, you know, you can all, all tides rise, all boats and you can give things away. Like your connections, you can give advice to competitors in your same space. You can, uh, mentor people and find time to mentor and counsel people. You can just have this generosity of spirit that comes back to you in, in ways you are kind of immeasurable. Mm-hmm. When you have that spirit, you're sort of looked at in a different way and people are more willing to connect, make recommendations for your company or for you. And it's this idea of like, I'm going to just, when I cross paths with someone or someone asks me for something, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to deliver. Not because it's quid pro quo. Like I expect something back from that person or they owe me a favor, but it's sort of like this universal idea of this generous spirit will come back to me in generous ways. And so that's the second principle of, of being persuasive. That's makes you a persuasive person. And there's some other, fine notes underneath that, like practicing positivity, which is an obvious one, but cultivating this idea of, of gratitude in your life. Um, I think it's also recognizing that anything can turn into something great. Even if, you know, I pitch a client and I don't win the business, I've invested in that relationship and I've made that connection. And that's now someone in my network that I can reach out to and it doesn't mean the relationship has to end. And so whenever I hear a no, and I know this sounds like super cheesy, <laughs> but it's true. Whenever I hear a no, we don't win something. I always think like, oh, it's just a no for right now. That's right. Like, I knew you were going to say that. I knew I, knew, I, knew I could tell by your body language, like, here it comes. Yeah, here it comes. I've heard, I heard this one before. Yeah. No. Yeah. But I, 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 I actually agree. And, I, and if, even if it is a no for, for good, a lot of times, and I tell this to people a ton, is that a lot of times it's you, you, you get your opportunities from the places you least expect, like the people that you least expect to help you or those things that were reje- you were rejected by. Like a lot of times, to your point, I, I never got a lot of different business deals or things that I thought were like a shoe in and then something other, something else happened and I never got it. But maintaining a relationship with those people ended up helping me in something down the road that I never even knew existed. Right. So I agree. And I also think that the idea of being generous, like the idea of abundance versus scarcity, right? Like there's, there's so many people and everybody's, I think in every industry where people hold really close to their, their chest, their contacts and everything like that. But like, I never, I never did that either. I was kind of very much open like that. And a lot of times, quite frankly, those people never really sometimes panned out. Like they never, if I asked them and I never really got anything in in return. Yeah, that happens a lot, but you can't let that worry you. A hundred percent. But I, I feel like because I have a certain mindset of like being giving like that, it will kind of pay itself back somewhere else where I never even figured out. You know what I mean? In, in it does. Way. It comes back with compound interest, but you can never pinpoint because I did that. This thing, ha- you know, it's not right. It's not direct connections, but it's having that mindset and just believing that it will it will come back in some way. And it's not about giving things away and expecting something back. Right. It's about doing it for the sake of doing it. And right. you know, I used to if people would ask me for advice or someone starting their own company. And they'd reach out. I would just sort of brush them off or ignore them. And then I realized, you know, there's people that helped me along my way and I have to pay it back. And I'm going to, I'm going to mentor other people in the same way. And people that I, you know, barely know will reach out to me and say, do you have 10 minutes? I'm working on this X, Y, and Z thing. I need some, I need some counseling and I'll do it. And I always try to find time for people. Um, even with a lack of what I don't have is an abundance of time, but I always try to find time uh, to, to do that and, and, and pay it forward. And that generous idea, that generous spirit is good for business. And, and by the way, it's not short-term transactional thinking. It's not 
it's more of a, of playing the long game when mm -hmm. you're generous, when you're a generous person, it's more of, um, I know it'll come back down the road. Yeah. But it's, it's all, it's all a long game. It's not sale to sale to sale to sale. Totally. Totally. I love this. The third key principle is empathy or empathetic. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, can you kind of just explain what exactly you mean by that? Yeah. It's, um, really the idea of developing a natural curiosity for other people and trying to understand their point of view and, and where they're coming from. And it's also having a collaborative nature and it's, you know, much more of a we mindset than, than a me mindset. And I find that when you're empathetic and you see, you know, really it starts with a mindset of looking for commonalities, not differences. And, we today, we, I think we all tend to think of if people don't agree with the way we think they're idiots or morons or wrong. <laughs> and I think politics has had a lot to do with that. Um, you know, vaccines has had a lot to do with that. Yeah. Um, and I think that you should always come from the point of, we're all we're all in this world and we're all similar we all we're all going through the human experience we're all made up of you know the same amount of dna <laughs> and we are humans and we all want the same things even if our views don't align and i think that is the hallmark of of starting to understand how you can be empathetic towards other people versus sort of uh bifurcated and, and in our own little world. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, today, especially like in now, like the times we're in right now, everything's very divided, right? Either if you don't think how I think, or you don't agree with me, people just like cut you off. There's no such thing as like dialogue or conversation. Now it's super divided and divisive. And, um, I don't know. It's, I think it's worse than it's ever been. I don't know where, do you, how do you think this is going to continue? Like, what do you think is going to be, how do you really integrate empathy or it, into somebody? Like, how do you teach empathy or how do you? Like, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a little uh, disheartening where we are right now because it feels like there's a complete lack of empathy mm -hmm. in the world. And then there's always the next thing. When you think it's going to get better, there's like the next thing that comes right. up that can divide people. But I, uh, I think we can all kind of, I mean, it just, it's about looking at yourself and starting there and trying to become, develop the idea of, of empathy and, and understanding that the commonalities between us and not seeing the differences and taking that step to like, dig deeper into why someone believes what they believe and not just keeping it at the surface. Yeah. I mean, I think if, uh, in terms of like timing, this is, that's a great thing to people should start really kind of try to integrate and kind of think about it. It all starts with yourself, right? Like at the end of the day, you can't, I can't control you, but I can't control myself. And if I'm self-aware enough to know that I'm doing this, try to kind of make it better. Or yeah, or, change. Or, or the way you communicate with people, uh, you know, my aunt's an idiot because she won't get a vaccine, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and just leave it at that. Like, I'm not going to talk to her again. Or she voted for someone that I don't believe in or she's against immigration or abortion or whatever it might be. I think you you're going to have your own belief system and you need to keep that belief system. But you can have a conversation without it being, you know, without throwing uh, daggers. And yeah. you can find out what is behind that person's belief so I can at least not agree with them, but I can understand where they're coming from. And that just shows a level of, of respect and um, the ability to, to communicate. So I, I, I tell this story of... Uh, for, uh, a wealthy friend of mine who was so against immigration and I could not understand, you know, we're all immigrants in this country. 
maybe you can have regulations on it. I get that. But this guy was like, you know, really uh, almost a, an isolationist to, about how we should view uh, our country. And I wanted to sort of dig in and understand why. And, and it turns out that um, when he was growing up, he was, um, you know, he, he lived with his dad. It was just him and his dad. And his dad would lose jobs. He was like a field migrant field, like a field mm -hmm. worker, agricultural field worker. And he would lose his job and they would sleep in the car for weeks until he could find another job. And he would lose it because uh, some immigrants were coming in and taking his job for less money. And, you know, he was a, a field hand and, and kept kind of like mm -hmm. not getting paid what he was valued. And so that was ingrained as a kid in his belief system. And so when you understand that there's, there's events that happen in people's lives that mm -hmm. make them hold the beliefs that they have, but at least I understand him versus shouting at each other uh, and not understanding it. So it's taking that one extra step to understand why, why someone would, would feel the way that they do. Precisely. And, and you might not understand it and you might not agree or you might not agree with it rather, but you understand where they're coming from. And that shows, respect and, and empathy, even if it doesn't show uh, agreement. Right. No, I think that's exactly it. I think empathy comes from really trying to put your put yourself also in other people's shoes and understanding where, where they're where, why they are, how they are, where they got those ideas from. Because you're right, a lot of times it happens because of their own life experiences that we know nothing about, unless we take the time and effort to kind of dig dig deeper into why it is that way. And that, that goes into persuasion and business because when you're running a, a business or you're, you know, whatever, you're working mm -hmm. in a company and you have, and we all have clients of some sort yeah. trying to understand what makes them tick and why they would feel the way they do or what their needs are. Right. That helps us be successful. No, I agree. So you do it at a, on a macro level and then we can do it in our day to day uh, work on a micro level. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the fourth key principle is soulful. Um, and you're taught, you talk about the importance of skill hunting. What is that? What is, what is that? What's skill? So hunting? skill hunting. I know, you know, what skill hunting is, but skill hunting is, I might know, but other people, you know, not. but your folks don't know, but really it's about, um, this idea of every two or three years is something that I've implemented is trying to learn a new skill because I think we all go through life. And as we get older, we're like, oh, there's so many things that I wanted to be good at or I wanted to accomplish that I'm never going to. And, <laughs> you know, for your folks listening that might be younger, they might not feel that way. But believe me, uh, you know, yes, uh, it will uh, happen to is, them, too. <laughs> father, time, father time is undefeated. Yeah. And we all have a shelf life. And this idea of skillful um, and skill hunting is every two or three years, that thing that you wanted to be proficient at, uh, write it down and that's your, that's your extra thing you're gonna spend time on for that period. And then you kind of move on. And it doesn't mean you have to master all of these, these ideas, but it means if I'm into photography, I've never really taken it seriously or given it a shot. Uh, okay, my next skill hunting for the next uh, two years is I'm going to really work in photography. And then if it's something that I implement into my daily life, that's great. Or if it's just something that I, I cracked for two years and I have a proficient skill at, that's great too. I'm doing it with chess now, which is something I always want to get good at. And I'm, I'm playing it with my 13 year old trying to, uh, really learn the moves and, and the techniques. And I'm really bad at it, but, that was my thing. It was, you know, boxing like five years ago. And that's something that stayed with me. And I incorporate that into my life. But when I first started, I had no idea how to do it. Um, you know, it could be uh, running a marathon. It could be uh, learning a language, whatever it is. It could be cooking. I, I kind of started doing a little bit of that during the pandemic. But it's really just taking one thing at a time, not trying to boil the ocean. And every couple of years, uh, learning something new and you go through that period of really sucking at it 
And that's the failure thing that you kind of alluded to. And that is always that there's always learning and discomfort. And when you suck at something, you have to push through it to get to the other side to get proficient at it. And that there's always so much learning and going through that process over and over again. Um, so that's one part of it. And then the other part of, of soulfulness is, is trying to be inspirational. You know, part of it is through skill hunting and always learning new skills and being proficient, proficient in more and more things. But it's also giving back in some way and trying to make the world a little bit better of a place uh, than when you found it. And it's giving your time and energy in whatever skill you have. It's applying that skill to uh, something good. These are great. I like these four, those, those four key principles. So all, if we, if we adopt some of these or integrate some of this into our life, we'll be more persuasive overall, basically. Right. Cause we're persuading not just in business, but in everyday life. Right. I mean, persuading you to come to lunch, go to my favorite place for lunch. You know, I'm trying yeah. to like convince I'm you to persuade. be live on your show. Right. To be yeah, on the treadmills exactly. behind me with me. Coming, you to come to New York, check out my gym here. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Not just like zooming all the time, but, um, no, I love that. I think this is great. And, and, but, and so just, again, the book is called the soulful art of persuasion, 11 habits that will make you make anyone a master influencer. Uh, how's the book doing, by the way? It's been out for a little bit, right? Yeah, it's doing it's doing well. It was um, it was uh, L.A. Times. It was on the L.A. Times bestseller list and the Wall Street Journal bestseller list early oh. in its early days. And now it's just sort of consistent. I think the book business, the analogy is similar to the music business where you have like uh, my publisher did Obama's book. Right. So it's. It's like you need one massive hit that kind of carries everything else. And I'd say I'm I'm in the I'm not in the I'm in the, you know, mid tier successful wrong. And then there's like hundreds of thousands of books that, you know, no one no one hears about or knows about. But I think it's the same game as the music business. You, you make so many bets and you hope that, you know, a couple a dozen pay off and they carry everything else. Totally. But yeah, it's done, it's done really well. I mean, uh, I can't complain. It's it's done incredibly well for me. That's incredible. Who's your publisher? Uh, publisher is uh, is Random House. Penguin oh, Random, Random House. House. Oh, okay, yeah. got it. Okay, I'm actually writing a book right now. My publisher is Hachette. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, How's it going? It's very stressful. I mean, it's a it's a lot of work and. Um, the business, you know, like you said, the, the, the book, the, the publishing world has changed and shifted a lot, but, yeah. um, yeah, but I, I, it's stressful because you have like deadlines and I want to make sure like you write a book now, it doesn't come out for like a year and a half, you know, sometimes. Even oh longer. yeah. That so. took me, my book took me three years cause I worked on the, it was my first book. So I worked on the proposal for a year and then it was yeah. about, yeah, uh, year and a half of working on it, writing it. And then, yeah, then it came out like a year after that. So right, like it's a long, years it's a long journey. Yeah, what's that? Long. It's a very like years later when nobody cares about your message anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But, it's like, okay. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. 11, uh, you know, 11 other books have come out since with the same title, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fun. It's worthwhile for sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, well, yeah. Jason, this is amazing. How do people find more about you? Give us some information about where to find you or your book and etc. Yeah. Et cetera. My book, book info is at the soulful art.com. My uh, company is mechanism, M E K A N I S M.com. So it's mechanism decay. And I'm just on the socials at Jason underscore Harris. Well, you've been amazing. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle Podcast, powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.